I was there. At the time, I didn't know it. Another person and I had been acquainted with the Wright Patterson archivist, and he had a clearance where you could go anyplace. And he invited this other person and I to a UFO meeting. But this one particular building was different because it had, and I was real impressed. I didn't know anything about the building at that time. I just knew its name and number and everything. That was the building that was the blue room. And so we had been in the blue room and we didn't even know it. My guest tonight has inside information with real documents that include hidden studies showing that UFOs really exist. Her explanation of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base includes interviews with top researchers, photographs showing hidden views, bodies in crypts, and visits to its famous Blue Room. Tonight, in the studio, Sacred Corridors, and my special guest is Dr. Irina Scott. That and more is coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. guest tonight has actually walked down the sacred corridors and hidden passageways where UFO studies have taken place and where she worked in several crucial UFO investigation agencies. Dr. Scott has been a biologist, a ufologist, and an author of at least six books, half of them dealing with UFOs and all things related. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Irina Scott. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very glad to be here and it sounds really interesting. Indeed, a pleasure to have you. I've been wanting to have you. I've read your couple of your books, and I haven't read the latest, but I'm going to read that one too. And you know, I felt it was important to mention your your science background tonight because that's so meaningful. And can you tell me what it means stepping into the UFO world with information that is factual and data driven? Yes, I think having an academic background has helped me in several ways. For one thing, I've been able to publish some. UFO data in scientific in the scientific literature and the peer-reviewed literature, and I think that really helps to have it helps people to think of it as being scientific and factual rather than just some type of flim flam. And also, um, 
I've done a lot of research and I'm used to doing research and so I document everything I do and things like that and try to calculate and you know see if I'm off on a tangent or doing something that makes sense and logic and that sort of thing. And I want to mention, too, that you have a very solid um, scientific background. You, you attended Ohio State, University of Nevada, um, Zuri, Cornell, and um, you're also at one time an assistant professor um, in biology. So that, that's very, very meaningful. You are also a correspondent for Popular Mechanics magazine. So um, when you incorporate those, those things individually into one thing and when you study UFOs, I mean, that's a big deal. So, um, any, anything that you've, anything that you've written in the past, how has it been, um, how has it been taken by the scientific community and what kind of feedback have you gotten? I've corresponded with several scientists. One of them was Dr. Harley Rutledge. He was a person that really impressed me. Have you heard of him? Yeah. yeah. And, um, I think he did an extremely good study of UFOs because he was out in the field and actually um, studying them in real time, which he was a, he's a PhD professor in physics. And so he could do, you know, the things that um, like figure out whether they, um, how odd they were and whether they were airplanes or odd airplanes or something else. And they did just a remarkable study of coming across things like um, why you can't, why you have trouble photographing them, and why they <laughs> do things like uh, they would see they set up stations, and they would watch the UFOs fly over, and sometimes they'd avoid the stations and things like that. Um, and so he did a, just a really good study and said that they may know what people are saying or know what people are thinking and adjust their behavior to that. It was kind of like a field study of animal behavior, but it was <laughs> of UFOs and it was just excellent. It's called Project Identification. I think the book's real hard to get and expensive. So was there a conclusion of, of why it's so hard to study the, the UFO phenomenon? UFOs and yes, because, um, for example, when they try to take pictures, they don't come out a lot of times. And he'd say that sometimes they'd aim the camera and the things would just disappear or go someplace else. And sometimes the pictures didn't, just didn't turn out. And that sort of thing that makes it very, very difficult to um, study them because scientists expect, you know, if you take a picture of something, it's there and it should photograph. But it, that, that's not the way UFOs do a lot of times. And so that's another, that's a reason why it's not, they're not accepted very well. But he did an intensive study and had other observers and um, scientific instruments too to show that they were really taking pictures and <laughs> they didn't turn out and that sort of thing. So it was pretty good. And I've actually attempted, and I've talked about this on other shows, but attempted to take pictures of, of 
things that I've witnessed in the past as well. And it's, it's one of those things, especially even with, even with technology now, which usually everybody carries with them. And we didn't do that 20 years ago or 40 years ago, but with the technology that we carry with us, we're still photographing an object at some distance, which, which appears in the, in the focal field of the, of the phone or the camera as a, a very small defined object. So it, Number one, um, usually you have a limited time to actually photograph it. And number two, it becomes particularly hard to find, you know, in your viewfinder, especially when there's a lot of excitement, things like that involved. So, you know, to me, it's never been a really big mystery of why it's so hard to photograph. Yeah, I take a lot of wildlife pictures, uh, too, just for a hobby. And it reminds me of (laughs) pictures of wildlife because you don't, know when it's going to show up you have to instantly take a picture and it with a ufo you know you may be so amazed that you just stand there and don't do anything and the the ufo or the wildlife will get out of the way real fast sometimes so it's very difficult and it's difficult to even control yourself to i mean i try to take wildlife pictures and i keep telling myself if i see something take a picture before I think. But, you know, I usually think and then it's too late and the animals uh, <laughs> run away or something. And the same for UFO photography. You're, if you see something that weird, you're just astounded and you don't take the picture, which is a big problem. Right. I think one of the other things, too, is the fact that, um, you know, you're you're witnessing this and you want to witness it and you struggle with two sides of yourself, one that wants to take the picture and the other side that, that wants to, to um, actually witness this. And I think the witness part, the witness side of, of the brain wins usually because, um, you know, as you know, it's a, it, we haven't seen a lot of really good photography of that. And I do know also that you brought up the fact of a wildlife photography and I live next to a, a bird refuge and some <laughs> wetlands. And um, these photographers who you know, are taking pictures of, of birds as uh, moving objects in the sky, take thousands of photos, you know, and um, mm-hmm. get maybe one or two that they consider a good quality photograph. So it's very, very difficult, even wildlife that we see every day. I know today I was walking out through, the, I live on a farm, and I was walking out through the field, and there were a couple of low buzzards. I think they were going to build a nest. And a hawk, and I was trying to get a picture of all three of them, but I didn't succeed. I got, but I did get some good buzzard pictures. <laughs> it was just interesting to try to get all three types of animals. So you are my fifth or sixth professor I've had on the program, and and each one of you have had a different focus on uh, preferred subgenres in in ufology, if you will. What are your interests, and um, what do you bring different to the table? What I bring different is is that um, I worked for the government, and so I was actually working in some of the places where some of the UFO studies took place. For example, I worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency for several years, and I was in photo interpretation and photogrammetry. And um, this isn't <laughs> what you'd call UFO work. But it was satellite photography, and we were supposed to identify all the airplanes, any anything in the air over this particular area, so that 
I had a good idea of what happens in the DIA and, you know, the type of photographer they use and that sort of thing. I also worked at the Telemorial Institute, and it did a real um, good study of under Project Blue Book of Spatial Report Number 14. And this is a study of UFOs. And I knew uh, some of the people that sort of peripherally worked in, it was real classified, but that, you know, knew the people and that sort of thing. And um, I've also been sent to Wright-Patterson for work-related things like for attending conferences and stuff. And so um, most of Wright-Patterson is very, very, very secure. And it's not a place where UFO, it's a, probably the mecca of ufology because it's where Project Blue Book took place and it's where um, the Roswell material went. And I think there's good documentation for that and where Hangar 18 is and all that. But nobody's been there. But I was lucky enough to be on site several times and <laughs> look around, took pictures and that sort of thing. Your book, Sacred Corridors, is an insider's guide that takes us through places like Wright-Patterson that you just mentioned and um, uh-huh. even looks into Project Blue Book and uh, defense intelligence. So what's the main idea and purpose, and, and what did you hope to, uh, to um, convey by writing the book Sacred Corridors? Well, for one thing, there's a lot of um, informant um, material, all kinds of books of informant material about Wright-Patterson, such as Kerry and Smith, and um, Leonard Stringfield and a lot of things about crisis and that there's um, bodies and UFOs and debris and everything stored at Wright-Patterson. Well, um, I hadn't been in too many of the buildings of, of inners, but I had driven around and like um, for what they call Hangar 18, would ask people around Dayton and things what it is. And they had told me a different thing than what's usually in the book. Said there's, there's hangers there, big hangers. And they said that one of those had been Hangar 18. And I think that was logical because uh, back in 1947, when the Roswell debris might have been coming in, well, the runway was by those hangars. And so I think what he said made sense, and I was able to get some close-up pictures of the hangar, the front and the back, and some of the airplanes around it, of course, didn't get in it. But um, I just suggested that maybe that was Hangar 18. And um, then they usually say that Building 18 is what's Hangar 18, and I was able to drive around and look at Building 18. There's a story that it's next to a building called Hangar 23 or Building 23. And the, the informant story is that um, there's uh, parts of a UFO or a whole UFO in the basement of Building 23. And that uh, they also did studies 
of that in building um, 18, or Hangar 18, which is right beside it. And there's the stories that they dug a tunnel from one building to the other, and then they can do studies and take um, take samples back between the buildings. And so I took pictures of the buildings, and they, uh, I didn't get inside it, but um, <laughs> uh, the windows are blocked on the side of building 18 that's beside 23, which kind of makes you wonder. And then I also heard stories of a person that did go into building 18. She didn't know it was building 18. And she just made a stop and took some kids in and didn't know anything about it. And she said when she came out that there were military guys pointing guns at them. And so that would sort of suggest, too, that um, it was highly secure. So how do they keep Wright Patterson secret? And well, I should say, how do they keep their secrets within Wright Patterson? And how is security there different from other bases that uh, other Air Force bases around the country? Well, the first, my first experience with Wright Patterson was when I was a real young kid, um, grade school, and my parents they had. Wright-Patterson has the Air, Air Force Museum, and it's the top Air Force Museum in the country. And it's a public thing. And so people think of it as just family. Wright-Patterson is sort of a family-friendly um, place. And they don't realize that all the rest of Wright-Patterson is surrounded by chain-link fences and guard posts and guards, armed guards and everything else. And when I went as a kid, uh, my sister and I, our, our parents took us, and we were going to see the Air Force Museum. And my father got lost, and <laughs> ended up circling around Wright-Patterson for a while, and we finally came in this group of buildings, and we were sort of trapped in, and suddenly five military guys came out with rifles, and pointed them right through our car windows and um, told us to leave. And my father didn't always obey orders, but he decided to that time. And so we survived, and then we found the, um, eventually found the museum. But um, that could impress you quite a bit when you're young, that there's a lot of security around that place. And the same type of thing happened not too long ago. It was in the newspaper of, woman and her mother and kids, the grandmother and the mother and kids, went to see the Air Force Museum and came out. And in the parking lot, armed guards came and made them get out of the car and made them stand on their knees while they were holding guns on them. And so, um, and that was in the paper. I gave a reference in the paper <laughs> book. But there's a lot of security around the places. Everything except the Air Force Museum is surrounded by big, tall chain link fences and guard posts with all kinds of guards and bars and everything you can think of. But it's very secure. Like you Area like Area fifty one, there's hundreds of civilians and I've brought this up too to people like Richard Doty. Um 
hundreds of people who work there and they do everything from maintenance to electrical and custodial work. Is there a way to keep these people from seeing things or is there just a way of keeping these people quiet? Well, you see, it's, it's just mainly informant data that there's things there. Um, I think there's, if there are uh, debris and artifacts and everything, they would be in particular places. They wouldn't be where just the janitors and everything go. Um, they would be in secured places. And so I don't think most people that work there would know. Okay. I think if you just work there, you'd work in an office and you might not. Um, if there is that sort of thing, I think it'd be very secure. Even for, I mean, the, Government is very compartmentalized, and um, I know that, so that um, there's a lot of people there that uh, that experience different parts of the base on a need-to-know basis, and of course, that's not unusual. But um, you would think that uh, with all the people that are in and out of there on a daily basis, there would just be so much more information. Um, do you know of any faction that actually works within? the confines of, of the base that um, is responsible for, for keeping track of these people and making sure that they stay silent about the activities there? No, I've been, I know, I understand Leonard Springfield, his, the way he did, the way he studied it is, if you go down to Dayton, and once I was just in a restaurant, and I had a UFO book that was with somebody else, and we were just kind of joking around. Somebody came up and said, oh, well, his uncle worked at Wright-Patterson. He knew where the debris was and where the bodies were and everything else. And you can go around Dayton. <laughs> People just come up and tell you that. But it's always secondhand. It's not, I actually saw that myself usually. Get their uncle or their yeah, kids. so they they must be doing a very very good job at uh, keeping people silent on that because it's it's one of those things that's so unusual. It just seemingly that people would love to tell that story, although there is a stigma attached to uh, telling those stories. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, have you heard of um, the Blue Room? I have heard of the Blue Room. Tell me about the Blue Room and talk about yeah, talk about that because it's a, that's very interesting. I was there. Really. At the time, I didn't know it. Another person I I knew I had been acquainted with the um, the archive, the Wright Patterson archivist, and he had a clearance where you'd go anyplace, and he invited this other person and I to a UFO meeting. And it was in this building, and I was—I had been there at conferences and stuff, and I was totally impressed with the building to start with. And um, well, what was different about the building was is that Wright Patterson, like I said, is surrounded by the main part of Wright Patterson is surrounded by chain link fences and guard posts and everything, and so the buildings are fairly secure. Well, this one particular building. I had noticed that when I'd been on conferences and things, that this one particular building was different because it had um, um, like cameras all around the roof and little devices all around the building and 
just all kinds of security, everything you could think of. So it was, and none of the other buildings had that. And when we went to the meeting, we went in that building. And I was real impressed. I didn't know anything about the building at that time. I just knew its name and number and everything. But later, in a book by uh, Carrie and Smith, they said that um, that FIOA document that they that somebody um, asked that um, that was the building that was the blue room, and so we had been in the blue room and we didn't even know it. So what what year was this that you were in the blue room? It was in uh, it was in the around I think nineteen ninety four. Um, but it was years and years. It was you know just recently I discovered that was considered the blue room. Right, and I and I had heard too that um, that the blue room was used uh, through the sixties and um, earlier. And um, there wasn't a lot of information after that. So I was one of those things that I always, that always kind of stuck out in my mind. And I was always wondering if that still existed, if they moved it, if they're still using it for that kind of storage or, um, you know, to me, it, it would, I would think that if they had established this blue room and it was for, for what they say it was for, that that would be something that would be of ultra high security and, um, that probably wouldn't go away because there's material kept there that would be very sacred to national security as well as, as um, posterity and history. So wouldn't you think that that would, that would still exist or still be exist today? Um, does that make sense? Well, it was certainly different from every other building I saw at Wright Patterson because none of them had security like that. And, you know, I'd have been a lot more impressed if somebody called it the Blue Room from Wright Patterson. But I didn't know that when I went in, and I was just totally impressed by, you know, all the cameras and everything, the security that was amazing. And I just got in because they, this man took us both in. And we went to a meeting on UFOs, surprisingly enough. It was, it was the last day he worked there, too. <laughs> he was being daring and took us in. Um and so it was pretty thrilling, especially when I found out what it was. But I didn't, it, apparently, if there's something there, it's probably in the basement or something like that in a secured area. Because the part I saw was just, you know, like, it looked like office building. I don't think, you know, office or labs or things like that. It was a real big building. There were all kinds of parts of it. And that would actually be the one of the crown jewel rooms of the, uh, the uh, U S government. It's seemingly that, that is the, is there good information? Is there good intelligence to say that uh, most of the UFO debris that we've collected in the United States, is it right? Patterson in that room? Oh, I don't know because you just have informants. And like I said, you can go to Dayton and everybody will tell you all kinds of things. Um, I guess they've moved it to Area 51 and probably other places, so I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if there's something, if they do have debris, maybe it's there, some of it, because there's pretty good documentation that um, that the debris from Roswell went to um, Wright-Patterson. 
I don't want to give up anything about sacred corridors, but I do want to know um, the first chapter of the book called uh, Future Human Evolution or Armageddon. What does that mean? Um, Just that we don't know what is going on in our future, but that UFOs are something that is probably important that's why it's so much people don't pay so much attention to it. Um, and you know, there's all kinds of theories about what are they and what's our future and that sort of thing. And I think that's why there's so much public attention on UFOs is because that may be, you know, meeting beings from other planets or other types of beings or other life forms may be a real important thing in our future. And we may be experiencing some of it now. Tell me about the timeliness of the book. The timeliness is that um, I, it was published right before the uh, Project Blue Book came on the History Channel last year. And so I tried to get it out before that. And it, you know, I had a lot about um, Project Blue Book in it. And what kind of new information did you bring? I had, um, for one thing, I had the um, study that Battelle Memorial did. Battelle Memorial get a um, for Project Blue Book and this was official report number 14 where they did a statistical study of UFOs and um, this was a real good scientific study and it may be the best that's ever that was ever done because they actually hired scientists. It was secret, and the only reason anybody found out about it was because of a whistleblower. But they hired the Tell Memorial Institute to do it, and I knew people that knew the people that had been involved with the study. And what was interesting about the study was is this kind of just about proved that UFOs exist. But people don't know anything about it because it's a very scientific, statistical study. If you open it up, you just see the statistics and graphs and everything, and you don't really understand it. And they they weren't clear at all about explaining things. But they did this statistical study of um, where they took witness reports for UFOs, and they had a lot of them. Uh, like from Project Blue Book. And they could, they develop a questionnaire where you can, in order to, you, where they can get precise information from people that observed UFOs. And there's lots of discrete things you can say, like what color are they? How many are there? Is there a sound? And different things like that. So they got, they did this really good um, questionnaire. They put the information 
into a computer and analyzed it, and they compared the um, UFOs that remained unexplained and compared them to UFOs that were later identified or called identified flying objects. And there was a huge statistical difference all the way through, like they calculated in five or six categories, like things like color and how many and how long did you watch it, things like that. There was a huge statistical difference between the ones that might be called real UFOs that were never identified and ones that were later identified, which showed basically statistically that UFOs are not just misidentifications of regular things. You've done some studying, extensive studying rather, on on Project Blue Book. And according to um, those who know, uh, the Blue Book, Project Blue Book had two goals. One was to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security. And another one was to uh, scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Um, do you believe that uh, Project Blue Book um, was really terminated in 1970? And, and why would that be? Because... Um, there was so much still to learn about uh, information about um, back engineering and, and things like that that would help our national security. Yeah, what they did was apparently that for some reason, I kind of had paperwork that went right up to the end. And it was surprising when they ended it because they were getting some really good data. And right then they decided to end it for unknown reasons. Um and the way they ended it was the Robertson panel and then the condom report. And both of those were pretty fake. Uh, the Robertson panel, they chose some really well-known outstanding scientists, but ones that didn't know anything about UFOs. And um, I had paperwork for that uh, from different people. Um, what they did was the Robertson panel is supposed to study the Battelle study on UFOs. And the, the Battelle study wasn't finished. <coughs> and they had uh, papers from, I showed some documents from people such as the president of Battelle and things that said, the data isn't finished, don't do the study. And so they did it anyway and declared that UFOs aren't threat to national security and tried to close it down in the same way for the condom committee um, they studied project blue book data and said there's no threat to national security well they couldn't even explain one third of the data and it just it was a whitewash both of them do you think they really ended the program or did they just rename it and reclassify it? I think, well, from my work at the Defense Intelligence Agency, I think they uh, keep information on every flying object in enemy territory. I imagine they do it in, all over the world. They, from, you know, the spy satellite, the spy in the sky. Well, they have those up and working all the time. 
And so if there's UFOs, I'm sure they have photographs of them just like they do of anything, of all the airplanes. And so I think that, like, the DIA would have information on DI, on UFOs, but I think it would be uh, compartmentalized. Just seems to me so, if there was an announcement that they actually ended it and it was so secretive to begin with, um, there may have been alternative motives involved there. I just, it's hard for me to believe that that could possibly go away when it was so hugely important. I know. I mean, like when I was working at the DIA, well, um, I found out my supervisors found what they thought was a UFO on their, um, on our, the photography we're using, which was satellite photography. And they reported it as a UFO. And I saw it, and it looked like it was a thing that looked like a domed thing. It was flying. It was over water. It was on two different missions. And I could get this, I could, you know, enlarge it and change its size and get it in stereo and things like that. And my supervisor was just amazed because they reported it as a UFO, and it wasn't anything we'd ever seen before. Well, their supervisor told them, that it was a imperfection on the film, which was just ridiculous because it was on two different films and you could see it in stereo. And they were just amazed that, you know, they got that from their supervisors. But that made me think that, yes, there's someplace up there, you know, above the, I mean, we had a real high clearance. We had um, it's some of the top clearances, but um, the compartmentalized type of security if he clearances, but um, they told us that <laughs> my supervisor, I think one was a GS-14 or something, that um, the photography that we saw just wasn't what we saw. So I think there's somebody up, up, up above where we were that <laughs> handles that sort of thing. Can you talk about special report number 14? Uh-huh. Um, it was done by Battelle Memorial Institute, and um, uh, so they're a think tank from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Is that a is that something that regularly contracted with the uh, the Air Force or the military, and and how did they get involved? It's it's kind of unclear. Um, they, they're not a think tank. They're a research organization. They're a real high, top research organization. They uh, developed Xeroxy and a lot of different things like that. And um, one reason they got into it, it, well, one reason, of course, I think it's because it's close to Wright-Patterson and it's also close to Ohio State. And they wanted a secret study done and Mattel has real top scientists and surprisingly enough the president of Mattel whose name was Clyde Williams um, he took on the project and at that time it would sort of make you look like you're nuts because UFO people were considered crazy and all that to have a big important scientific research organization 
study UFOs. And so they didn't want the world to know, and it was secret. And then it was secret because um, I think it was the need of Project Blue Book, but Project Blue Book was basically kind of debunking UFOs all the way along. But at the same time, they were doing this secret study, top secret, of the characteristics of UFOs. And the um, president of Mattel took on the project. And the president of Mattel had been there when it was Clyde Williams. He had been there when the Rothschild debris came in. And so um, that's how they got into it. And um, they, it was what was interesting was that it was supposed to be a study that studied um, UFOs statistically, and they were to develop a questionnaire which will pull out the uh, real hardcore information about UFOs from witnesses. And so what they wanted was what you'd think they would use would be maybe psychologists or people that knew something about how to do questionnaire and statisticians. But what they wound up hiring were metallurgists and people at Mattel were certainly surprised at that. Um, because <laughs> it didn't have a thing to do with metallurgy and they had, it looked like the people that they knew that had something to do with it were metallurgists. And so there was a lot of question about whether maybe they had analyzed debris. But it was, and you know, there was that question and people wondered. And then what we had reported, I had reported in a couple of my books was is that people had wondered about that. And I had found somebody that was a scientist, a metallurgist, that had quit there, but he had told uh, somebody that he worked on uh, artifacts from UFOs that came from New Mexico and described what he worked on and said, yes, he did. I mean, he didn't, obviously, this was just an informal conversation, but I talked to the people that talked to him. And so we reported on that too, because that was the first indication we, anybody had that maybe they had actually worked on debris instead of just um, doing that study. One of the things that strikes me is uh, they did their statistical analysis on um, cases that uh, were evaluated on six different characteristics, the the color, number, duration of observation, brightness, shape, and speed of of different sightings. Um, To me, that data seems very, very skewed, only in the way because of of the sample. and how they would actually collect that sample. Where were they getting these cases and the information? And I understand how they broke it down and, and were compiling it and um, trying to categorize it, but where were they getting all this information in the first place to um, plug it into these uh, punch card computers? 
uh, from the questionnaire. They would ask a lot of questions like, what color? And that's fairly discreet. I mean, it's not something that, you know, you would say, well, it might be one color. You you know, you can tell what color it is, whether it's blue or orange or purple. And the number, well, um, you, uh, it's reasonably discreet whether you see one or three or something. And the duration, they ask for like, is this like under five minutes or over five minutes or something like that. Um, and so I think they had some discrete things. And what they did was compare those statistically to uh, between the ones that were never identified and the ones that were identified. And they did come out, they used chi-square, which is a good statistical method. And there were highly significant differences in five of the six categories. I guess I'm wondering where they got the samples. I mean, did they actually hear of sightings and go track these people all over the continent to try to figure out um, what they actually saw? They got them from um, the questionnaire that they had people, people fill out for Project Blue Book. And that was a huge amount of data. So, yeah, yeah, just, I I would like to, it would be very interesting to see, you know, what would the actual questionnaire and and what it look like. And, and, um, unfortunately we'll probably never, ever know. I suspect it looked like the ones that the Center for UFO Studies was doing. Um, I should have published a picture of that, but they had to fill out a narrative of what happened. And then they ask questions like, if you hold up a dime at, at arm's length, how does that compare to its size? And ask discrete questions such as how many do you see and what color and that sort of thing. It was, a, it was about four pages. It had a lot of questions. Do you feel there's any relationship now with um, entities that are doing research in, in UFO activity and, and, uh, that original, original, what am I trying to say? I'm sorry. I, I want to know if there's any relationship between the, the research that was done then and um, the compilation of all that data. And is there any research data now that's being compiled by different um, entities like uh, MUFON? Or are they related in any way? And is that any of that information being kept track of by um, the Air Force, the government, or whoever is keeping track of UFOs now? I don't know that it is. Um, A person named Cheryl Cox wrote a book recently about statistical analysis of um, UFOs, and she just took different states and said, what hours do you see the most, and what seasons are the most sightings and things like that. I don't I don't know if a study this would be a really good study. Um, but I don't know anybody's done it like that. That ori- and, that original project Blue Book um, special report number fourteen, does it contain any actual proof that uh, the UFO UFO phenomenon is real? 
I think statistically that's the best you could do, actually, because everything, you know, if you just, if somebody takes a picture, everybody, all the bunkers will say it's fake no matter what. And I think the best you could do is analyze the empirical data of people's sightings. And that's what was done. And, you know, like if there was nothing to it, well, I don't think it would be statistically different. Why I is mean, that? for example, if if you look if you see an airplane, um, it has it has standard light, lighting like white, red, and green. But if you see something blue or purple or something like that, it's not standard airplane lighting, and so it's going to show up statistically. I think. If you have a vast amount of data, and they had a vast amount of data, I think they had started out with 13,000 reports, and they called it down to get the best ones and use that statistically. I think one of the things that are different right now than were different in 1970 is how we can treat that data. I mean, there's there's so much of it, and it would be so valuable to pour into um, supercomputers that are capable of looking at it from a different point of view, I think, right now. Well, the government may be doing that, but um, I don't know, you know, I think it'd be a good study, and it'd be nice to do. I don't know if they, um, any of the groups like MUFON or anything, because they're just not funded like the government was, and it took, I mean, they asked for the money in that case and got some from the government to do this study. Well, that's a good point because even back then it cost plenty to be able to analyze that data and have that many staff on hand to, um, to look at it. Yeah. And these are professional people too. So were these people that were looking at this data that did, was this a, was this a day job or did they, uh, were they employed elsewhere at the same time in order to make ends meet because it wasn't a program that was around, you know, everybody's kind of cut loose after 1970, apparently. Yeah. Um, these are, this study was done by Battelle employees, and I tried to find out who did the study, and I couldn't find out because they didn't list the people that did the study. They just listed uh, people that knew about it, such as the supervisors, and the only reason they found out that was due to a whistleblower that um, told that um, let people know about some of the documents. But I was unable to find out who did the actual study. But they were people employed by Mattel that, um, and Mattel got grant money for doing it. But they weren't, they weren't, that's what was odd about it was they, so far as you could tell, the people that, you knew about were metallurgists, which was seems very strange for the study that was done that wasn't a metallurgical study. Can you talk about uh, Heineck and his criticism of um, Project Blue Book in the in the report? <laughs> yeah, he um, he was he was originally hired as a debunker. And um, so, you know, they'd roll him out and 
when it was a UFO sighting, he'd say, oh, it's Venus or something. And he thought when he started, um, I think he probably sort of thought it was Flynn Flam. But um, I think the reason behind the reason they hired him wasn't just because he was saying he's skeptical. He had some clearances, too. He'd been working for the government and other things. But then he was extremely open-minded about things. And after um, hearing reports and talking to people and analyzing everything, he thought that there was something to it, even though Blue Book was saying, oh, no, you're all, you know, everybody's crazy and all that. And so he, after Blue Book stopped, he, he was a professor at Northwestern, well, he founded the Center for UFO Studies and tried to set up as a um, scientific organization and got PhD scientists and good high-level people and set it up so that they'd have like scientific peer-reviewed um, reports and things like that, just like a regular scientific society. So what kind of employee was he of this system? Was he, um, was, was he, was he valuable? Was he, was he hard to deal with? Um, actually he was probably a well-paid person and a, a very good, uh, consultant, but, um, how did he, uh, what was the reaction of, of his handlers? Well, I had, in, I had, you know, documents that told about, um, uh, Heineck from, you see, there were people above him that had higher clearances that knew that were doing that actual study that was secret, and he didn't know about it. And, you know, at that time, he didn't have the clearances that some of the rest of them did. And so he knew that he wasn't getting all the information, which he couldn't do anything about, and he stuck it out because he wanted to find out everything he could, regardless of whether what was going on, and he stayed in it. But um, he was a professor at OSU at that time, and that's probably one, another reason why he got the job was because OSU was close to Wright-Patterson, and then he became a professor at, um, at Northwestern later and. I think he was the head of the department too, but he was a, a successful professor and he did high level astronomy too, because he was an astronomer and a professor in astronomy. And so he, that was his main job. And so that when he, um, he was a consultant to Blue Book and they were paying him, but he was, that wasn't his main job. He was a professor. He had criticized um, the incompetence and um, shoddy research in part of Air Force personnel. Um, any idea what he actually saw there that uh, really irritated him? Yeah, I think the fact that they were debunking <laughs> perfectly good stories um, about UFOs, I think, had something to do with it. I had his, in my book, I had um, a lot of, uh, quite a number of his actual handwritten letters that he wrote. 
Um, and you could tell he was taking it seriously, that he was very interested, and he was especially interested in reports from scientists. And, you know, where they had some analytical training and, you know, studied this thing. And that's not what Blue Book did. That Blue Book had, you know, somebody say, well, I saw this UFO, you know, maybe it hovered and moved up and down or something. And then Blue Book would say, oh, you saw Venus. Well, that irritated them. I know that he also, he was very critical of uh, Sergeant David Moody, who he called the uh, master of possible because of um, the debunking, which they would label things as possible balloons and possible aircraft and birds. And, and um, so was this part of the undoing of, of Project Blue Book or was it just destined to uh, be a short-lived program? I, I think when they started, it started as Project Sign <clears throat> before it went into Blue Book. And I think there was some scientific analysis in that. And they came to the conclusion that UFOs might be extraterrestrial. Well, then they, it turned into Project Grudge and that turned into Project Blue Book. And apparently the higher-ups wanted to debunk UFOs. And... I mean, it was purported to be a scientific study, and the top secret part of it was a scientific study, but it wasn't the part that the public knew about. The public, they were having people debunk it, and like, um, there was a real good sighting here. The It was called the Portage County sighting. It was by a policeman named Spar, and I think it's a Nesbitt or something, where they, uh, where these policemen were on the police radio when this happened. It was in Ohio, and they um, heard about a UFO and they laughed and everything. And then they saw it, and it was right over their cruiser. And they radioed into the office, to the police office, and they were on the radio the whole time this happened. The police office said, um, shoot it, and they didn't. And anyway, they followed the thing into through Ohio and into Pennsylvania. There were all kinds of witnesses. There were a lot of um, other policemen and everything else. And Blue Book said, well, they were following um, Venus or satellite or something, which wasn't anything like what they described at all. And um, things like that, I think, just were really far out and it ruined the, just ruined the life of the people that described it because they were on the radio and there were a lot of witnesses watching it. And Blue Book would say, you know, somebody would see a landing or something and they'd say, oh, that's, you know, a lightning ball or a thunderstorm or something when it just made no sense at all compared to what they actually reported. And when I talked earlier about, about Heineck being very critical, I mean, he was overly critical. He actually wrote about it and um, there's plenty of information and plenty of critiquing that he did on the whole project. But 
originally, do you think that um, maybe the Air Force thought that that project would be short-lived and they would jump into it, debunk the whole UFO phenomenon, and it would be over and done with? Yeah, I don't know why they were debunking it. The only thing I can figure out is is that um, maybe they were getting real good information and they didn't want the other countries to know and so they wanted to keep it secret. Um, it started out in the military, and the military has everything classified. And I think at first, with UFOs, they thought that these might be Russian or from some other country. And I think that's how it got classified to start with, but then it continued to be classified. And so there's the debunking part, which may have been, you know, organized to throw uh, other countries off and think, well, we don't know anything about it when they were actually collecting information. That's the only thing I can think of because I don't know what they were debunking because somebody should have been concerned about it, I think. I think my frustration and probably others is the fact that we'll probably never know what they found out and... It would be nice if, well, if that info was made public, but I, I mean, who would be the deciding person that would that would make it public? Well, it seems to be coming a little bit public now with that information from the Nemeth and um, uh, that uh, information, you know, from the Tic Tac object right. and all that. Right. We got a little bit of time left. I'd like you to talk about your other books really quick, and and um, because uh, th- that's how I originally discovered you. And I want to read, um, of course, Sacred Corridors, which is available. But uh, tell me about the two previous books that you did on UFOs. The first one was called UFOs Today: Seventy Years of Lies, Misinformation, and Government Cover-Up, and this was about. Um, the cover-up, and I started right at the beginning of ufology and went all the way through, including this uh, SR-14 study and everything up until practically today, and just um, mentioned the cover-up and how it might have started way back. And the second one I wrote is called Inside the Lightning Ball. And it was my own experience and those of scientists. Have you ever had any criticism from unknown sources that you would expect to be a military or government agency? If I did, I didn't pay attention to them, so I don't know. <laughs> That's a good idea, but... but um, you know, I, I often wonder that people who had actually worked with uh, and closely with the, with the government who came out and, and written different things in books about uh, their experiences, if they ever had problems or were ever contacted about the stuff they had written, did you ever have to request uh, clearance for that? No, because I never said anything was classified. I had some things, some interesting things happen, though. Um when I had been on Wright-Patterson and I'd taken pictures in the secured area of the building and I published them. 
in a local um, UFO publication that the local group had. And I sent <laughs> back to the archivist. And we thought there were moles in our local group. Anyway, <laughs> what happened was is that just it was published about three days later. A T thirty eight, which is a supersonic jet, came flying up my road and dived on my house. I mean, it dove right at my house so that my house was shaking and everything. And it was just like, I thought the end of the world was going to happen. And I grabbed one camera and I got out and I sort of lived by a park where you wouldn't do that. And there was a um, stunt pilot up and I got the picture of the jet and the stunt pilot both at once and I ran back and managed to get my camcorder loaded and ran back out and got a picture of the airplane. Got some good enough pictures that people could identify what airplane it was. And then I ran to my neighbors who were standing outside with their mouths open. And what I asked, what happened? <laughs> the neighbors said, it dive-bombed your house. And um, it dove right at my house and came up over a park where there were <laughs> model airplanes and things like that and circled for a while and left. And um, this is this was a military plane. And you don't dive at civilian things <laughs> like that. And I had it all on tape. I mean, I put it on YouTube. And so I wondered if something was going on there. And some other people had some experiences, too. It was pretty weird. Interesting. Are you uh, in the works right now? Are you writing anything? I just had UFO a book related. accepted today, and I was very, very happy. Right on. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, any idea when that'll be out? Not uh, maybe next year, or I hope it's this year, but it won't be immediately. Is there a, a hint of what we can expect? Um, it, uh, I was working on the Pascagoula, if you know what that is. Absolutely. I've had Calvin on the show. Good. I mean, I sure did, but anyway, I had been studying a part of that for a very long time. And um, there was a wave and a lot of odd things that happened at the same time as they had that abduction. And it was actually the first thing I was started on, even before I was in UFO, you know, studying UFOs. And so anyway, this is about the other things that happened at the same time as the um, Pascagoula abduction, and it was pretty weird. A lot more happened than that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of information there that needs to come out. I know that uh, that they're working on it, and um, Galvin has has met some new witnesses, and and there's more information mm-hmm. there. It's becoming more and more interesting, especially the fact that that he's actually come forward and, and is talking about it now and writing about it. And so, yeah, that's one thing yeah, I'm following very closely. I've been, you know, with his book and interviewing some of the other witnesses 
And everybody in me sounded very credible. Right. Very, very interesting. Him. Yeah, Philip is yeah. working on that very hard, and he's uh, he's done a lot. And um, pretty amazing guy, and, and um, he's published a lot of books for a lot of nice people that are fascinating and brilliant, and it's always exciting to see what he has come out. Philip Mantle, see, to see what Philip Mantle has next up his sleeve. Yeah, he's awfully good. There's he's always something. Good. Yeah. So where where else can we find you online? Let everybody know about you, or your website, and uh, where else they can find you. My website is irenascott.com, and I have all my books listed. Um, and I'm on Facebook. I'm in some academic ones like ResearchGate and LinkedIn and those too. Excellent. My guest tonight has been Dr. Irena Scott. The book is called Sacred Corridors, and I'd like to uh, just say to Dr. Scott, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. My Alien Life You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. 